So here we are, the bowels of government, deep in a bunker within the treasury talking about infrastructure. And something is gnawing at me. Kenny, do you remember when or where we first met? I think we met when you were a journalist at Infrastructure Journal. I was at Financial Mechanics. We were talking about doing some, us doing some high-level modeling and project analysis to support IG articles, I think. I think it would have been around 2008. John Richter, is that yeah, your colleague's right. name? Yeah, that's right. He um, had this, well, we had this mad idea, and John was, was willing to listen to us, that uh, we might be able to predict an internal rate of return by running some kind of Monte Carlo simulation on the, on the data that IJ collected. And I think it was like a challenge to see how close we could get to a project RI with a very minimum of information, what actually moves the dial on an infrastructure project model, like have two or three inputs and see how close we could get. I think that was the kind of thing we were trying to replicate, right? It was pretty ambitious, I think. It was very ambitious and um, inevitably it didn't lead to anything. But um, (laughs) if you hadn't reminded me, I I probably would have guessed with almost a fair amount of certainty and confidence that, uh, overconfidence, I should say, that we had met in an event uh, probably in London and probably hosted by a law firm, as as was the case in those days. With law firm canopies, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I could see that scenario as well. It's it's not true, but I think if we if we had been there, I think we would have most likely been talking about what we talk about, which is developing financing and the infrastructure projects, infrastructure market at large, right? Yeah, and here we are, so many years later, still talking about <laughs> developing and financing infrastructure projects. Stage of route all over again. Exactly. I sometimes wonder how. In all that time, how has the conversation changed? Has it changed? It feels like it has, but then sometimes I feel like it doesn't. Yeah. Well, look, we have, I guess we have five five more episodes to find out, right? That is the best laid plans of mice and men, which uh, maybe isn't a great reference in a podcast series about infrastructure or when you're speaking from the bowels of government within the treasury and possibly there are mice running around. You may hear them in the background. (laughs) I'm not sure. I think there's a bit of burns, right? I think there's, uh, I think you hear a lot of Scottish accents and infrastructure, not not just mine. So I'm I'm sure they'll forgive you. So, where are we going today? Not Scotland, I imagine. No, for this one we're going to start in London, a very nice office in Mayfair, and a, a place that I suspect you know pretty well. Would that be uh, KPMG's <laughs> present? Good setup, good setup. I think it would be, and I think meeting with somebody you know pretty well, Richard Threlfall, KPMG's head of infrastructure to talk about emerging trends. As you know very well, Richard has exceptional visibility of how different countries and cultures are approaching infrastructure in an era of digital transformation. So I have the privilege of spending almost every other week traveling somewhere around the world, um, getting excited about all the things that are happening in infrastructure. And the thing that we pointed out in our Emerging Trends 2019, which we published in January, that really is the big overriding theme today, is technology. Our perception is that the world of infrastructure is being transformed by technology. It's washing across everything to do with the sector. When we talk about technology and infrastructure, I think most people immediately think about, well, it's something to do with off-site construction or maybe it's the robotics so they they think about the physical technology that's sitting in the in the act of constructing assets but it's not just about that it's about the way data is being used it's about the way in which data is being used for example to allow us to plan our data far more effectively than we've ever done before 
It's about the use of data to drive the level of service to the end user that comes off a, a piece of infrastructure. But it's more fundamental than that. The thing that's really exciting today is we're seeing whole industries being transformed by technology and data, in particular the transport and the energy industries. And you, uh, as well as the emerging trends, you also publish the AV Readiness Index, don't you? Um, tell me more about that. Tell me more about technology and transport and the, what you see happening there. So the Autonomous Vehicles Readiness Index, we published for the first time in 2018 and have literally just published the 2019 update of that. And uh, uh, this is my baby, actually, this, this, this document. I, it, was, it, was, uh, it was conceived on an aeroplane. Uh, and it came about because um, I'd had so many conversations, particularly with um, governments and city authorities all over the world, about what they could see in terms of this impending mobility revolution. And, and the first question was always, what's everyone else doing? And so the, the logic behind the Autonomous Vehicle Readiness Index was, let's consolidate a view of what is going on in different countries that are creating the basis to enable that future of autonomous vehicles to come as quickly as possible. Now, why is why? Why should we get excited about that? Uh, for me, because the benefits that are going to be unlocked in that future are, are extraordinary. It's not just about autonomous vehicles, it's about the combination of the autonomous technology, the electrification of transport, and the creation of this thing called mobility as a service. In other words, all modes of transport end up on one platform. I can push a button on my phone and I immediately can get from wherever I am to wherever I want to go without having to look up a timetable, without having to buy a ticket, without having to hand over money in order to do so. So it all just becomes absolutely seamless from the point of view of the end user. You put together those three components of the mobility revolution and you have a world, firstly, in which um, far fewer people get killed because autonomous vehicles are going to be far safer than, than humans behind the wheels of cars. Secondly, our air quality is going to go up significantly because of the electrification of transport. Um, but thirdly, we're going to create that holy grail of transport, which is accessibility for everybody. It doesn't matter if you're young or you're very old or you're disabled or you live in some remote community where it was never, ever economic to put a bus on. Suddenly you can go to where you want to get to. And that is going to unlock this phenomenal explosion in the amount of travel that goes on in the world. It's also going to unlock um, a complete transformation of the way freight is moved around the world. So that's why we wrote the index, mm -hmm. in order to shine a stop spotlight on that opportunity and get people excited about what it would take in order to make it happen sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. you, talk, you talk about, um, I mean obviously that has a, there's a huge data component to that, but you also talk about data in terms of planning infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me more about that in terms of what's happening there and who you, who you see as being uh, ahead of the game in that, in that world? So this is, this is a really exciting space as well. Um, if you look back, infrastructure planning has tended to be a combination of some engineering judgment um, and a lot of political horse trading, and still is in many parts of the world. But what we've seen, I'd say, over the last five years... Um, firstly, we've seen a lot more governance move into the infrastructure planning space. Um, it's not that it's depoliticised as such, because clearly putting a big motorway through the middle of 
you know, somebody's backyard is always going to be a political thing or putting a waste plant next to a community. You can't take the politics out of that. But what you can do is you can draw on a lot more objective data that helps you determine what is the best use of this country's resources in terms of the capital it should be investing in in order to drive both its economic growth but also the societal quality of life of the people that live in that in that region. And what we are then seeing is the ability to use and draw on vast amounts of data in order to inform those decisions. Now you asked about some good examples of this. So I, I served on the National Needs Assessment Committee that was formed here in the UK under the chairmanship of Sir John Armit a few years ago, which was really the first attempt anywhere in the world to do a proper academically based 30, 40 year look forward and say, well, okay, we can't predict the future, but we can look at some of the trends and we can say under almost all scenarios, we're going to need this much more energy. We're going to need to do the following things if we're going to try to decarbonise. We're going to need to do the following things to allow our cities to cope with the increase in the amount of transport. We're going to need this much more housing in order to be able to create communities that people are able to live in comfortably and enhances their quality of life and so on and so on. So that was a real step forward. Um, We're seeing Singapore create a digital twin of the entire city-state in order to be able to uh, to be able to conceptualize on a model what the impact of a piece of infrastructure would be before you spend billions of dollars actually building it and then realize that maybe it wasn't the best thing that you could have done i suspect it'll be a couple of years before that ends up being um, something that will work um, perfectly in all cases but the fact that they're actually conceiving and trying to do that i think is is hugely exciting and, and to give you one last example, um, uh, which I think will become eventually ubiquitous around the world, um, KPMG's uh, been working very closely with Infrastructure Victoria in, in Australia over the last few years uh, and uh, helped build a um, next-generation spatial planning model. And we used that last year um, with Infrastructure Victoria to look at what the implications would be for the city of Melbourne in a world of zero emission and connected vehicles. We looked at a whole bunch of scenarios and we produced reports off the back of that, of that um, which looked at what it would mean in terms of transport, what would it mean in terms of the fiscal impact in terms of money into government, because obviously we're heading into a world where governments are not getting fuel duty from petrol and diesel vehicles because people are switching into electric. And thirdly, what would it mean in terms of the demands for electricity generation and distribution? Now, the ability to gather huge amounts of data, some scraped off the cloud and some proprietary data sets that we were given access to, in order to then crunch that sort of view of the world, to me that's hugely exciting. Mm -hmm. Enormous. Fantastic. And... and, um... Tell me, tell me about how you see you know, th- these things we're talking about very much developed country trends. Tell me a bit more about developing country trends and in infrastructure. How do you see things progressing there in, in, in the coming years? So another thing that gets me really excited about infrastructure is um, the way it is a key component of the transformation of economies and therefore it is 
an essential step to allowing developing economies to move into becoming developed economies. Uh, and actually, one of my reflections last year, when we had that um, uh, tragedy, which was the earthquake that triggered the tsunami um, uh, in Indonesia, was, I think the economist at the time said, um, the impact on the community was far worse than it should have been because the infrastructure was ropey. Uh, and that for, me is, that for me is what it's all about um, as a, an individual working in the infrastructure community. If we can, uh, in a place like Indonesia, uh, give them the roads that allow people to escape when something's happening, or allow emergency services to get in quicker, early warning systems, flood defences, hospitals, so if somebody's injured it's less likely to result in death, schools, so that the education that allows people to know how to react in, in that situation. These are the sorts of things that are life transformative in a community such as that. Now that's the emerging market opportunity, I think, writ large. Um, we are seeing today a huge, huge level of infrastructure spend going into emerging markets. You know, we're now up to a point where probably about 60% of the world's new build infrastructure spend is in the Asia-Pacific region in emerging markets generally. Um, and I think it's incumbent on all organisations, including ours at KPMG, to pivot more of their effort into those markets in order to, to help them up that learning curve. And... Um what are the what do you think are the, the barriers and the, the challenges to, to, to infrastructure development in developing countries specifically? So there's been a lot of work done over the last few years by the OECD and the World Bank and the Global Infrastructure Hub um, to try to help developing markets create the environments which make it easier to deliver infrastructure. Um, and we know that the big barriers are um, often around governance um, and the way in which creating enough stability, if you like, for um, projects to be delivered. We know there are still big funding challenges in these countries, um, which is why um, the intervention of the multilateral development banks, such as the World Bank, is so important. Um, and, and we know that there are often just issues in terms of um, labour, materials, just, just physically getting these, these projects built. One of the things that, um, that we picked up in the emerging trends this year as, as being a particularly exciting development um, is the recognition of the power of blending development bank funding with private institutional finance. There's different names for different flavours of this, but blended finance is, uh, is, is the one that most will be familiar with. And Jim Kim... Uh, President of the World Bank stood up at the uh, World Bank gathering in Bali last year and I think really powerfully said we recognise that we need to draw on private institutional capital to invest in infrastructure in emerging markets if we are going to have any hope of delivering the UN Sustainable Development Goals in the time frame that has been set down by 2030. And I think that acknowledgement is really, really important and actually for 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 myself and colleagues who advise on infrastructure day in, day out, that also said to us that the skill sets that we have as an organisation around structuring projects 
in order to bring private capital into them, suddenly that, that, that capability is able to be deployed across emerging markets in tandem with the aid funding. And that, I think, is, is hugely exciting for us professionally, but is also a huge opportunity to, um, to enhance the infrastructure of those markets much more quickly than we would otherwise have seen. Mm. You, you touched on sustainability there. That was one of the trends that are mentioned in your document. Can you talk more about what you see happening there? So one of the trends we called out was sustainability becomes mainstream. If you look back five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, sustainability was a topic of conversation for sure, but it was it was one that seemed to be confined to NGOs and individuals who had a particular interest around that space and attached to particular topics such as climate change. It wasn't seen more broadly than that. The thing that we've noticed really powerfully over just the last 12 months is the way in which sustainability has become a board-level conversation of the world's biggest corporates. Um, And the definition of sustainability has broadened out massively. So it's no longer just about aspects of climate change, for example. It's about recognising that um, everything that the world is doing whether it's around labour, whether it's around materials, whether it's around the way in which we create assets, whether it's around the financing of assets, needs to be done in a way that is conscious of what does that mean for our children and our grandchildren and what is the world that we are bequeathing to them. And it's a theme that's that's picked up really powerfully in a book that I've been reading um, recently called Donut Economics, um, which makes the case that Traditionally, economics has fixated simply around economic growth. And that book poses the challenge whether actually economic growth is everything or whether in practice what we should be trying to do is find a sustainable balance between economic growth and using the resources of the planet in a way that means that that growth can endure over time and actually focus on an outcome which is the quality of life of individuals. Really interesting. And infrastructure has got a huge role to play in that, right? In- infrastructure is, is, is you know, it's not the entire answer, much as I might sometimes like it to be, um, but it is a very, very significant part of that, clearly, because, because the thing about infrastructure is it's intergenerational. It's not about consuming today. It's about investing in our future. And, and sometimes when I'm talking to, to, to governments or city authorities, I say we should, we should think about the decisions that we make over infrastructure in the same way as if we were a company deciding how to invest in a new factory or a new machine. We're trying to make uh, the decision which is the thing that is going to best ensure the future success of this city or country over the next 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years. It's a, it's a stewardship role, if you like, about making that critical decision about what proportion of the wealth of this generation are we going to bequeath in order to support future generations. It's a really excellent way of looking at it. How does the current kind of political turmoil, shall we say, uh, how is that affecting infrastructure and, and those kind of ability to kind of have that kind of long-term view? So one of the one of the positions that we that we set out in this year's emerging trends um, 
face straight into that question of uh, is the world becoming more insular, uh, the focus on walls and borders? Um, does, this create a, does this create a more difficult landscape for building infrastructure? And perhaps controversially, we said no. We don't, we don't think it does. We think it's, it's easy, perhaps, um, to get depressed uh, at the way in which certain countries seem to be turning in on themselves. Um, but the reality is that what we read every day in the papers isn't necessarily reflective of the reality of what's happening on the ground. And the reality of what's happening on the ground is ever bigger, more complicated, more cross-border, major infrastructure projects are being delivered. Last year, for example, we saw the opening of the road that runs all the way from St. Petersburg right the way across to the eastern seaboard of China. And we saw the opening of the Hong Kong-Macau Bridge, which is a fantastic piece of civil engineering. Um, and we are... And there's infrastructure being built which we don't even hear about. Subsea internet cables that are being laid. Huge data warehouses that the Googles of this world are, are placing under the seabed to keep them cool in the Arctic. None of this will ever you know, be a front page piece of news compared to some debate over putting another wall around, around uh, a particular country. Um, but it is the reality. And what's also happening is the I think there is an, an ongoing inevitability of globalisation where supply chains, the way in which organisations and businesses work together uh, in a way that is inherently cross-border and not respecting of borders, that, that powerful trend continues nonetheless. And yet you also mentioned before that delivering big complex mega projects is getting harder. That's right, it is getting harder. Um, projects do seem to be getting bigger and more complicated and more expensive. Uh, and we get, that's very exciting, uh, but uh, it also means that challenges of delivering those projects is, is getting greater and greater. Um, and we're seeing in particular uh, there are challenges around uh, the uh, capability, just the managerial capability to be able to cope with that level of complexity. Uh, and by definition, if a project is getting bigger and bigger, the number of unexpected risks that are going to materialise over the course of that project's life are going to magnify as well. And that in turn means that um, there are more opportunities for the sponsors of those projects, which will often in case be a government. There'll be more, there'll be more times when that government needs to hold firm and hold its nerve and therefore more risk of a project falling over at some point in its, in its development because it just hasn't quite got over the line. Um, I think there's an urgent need for the world to um, invest in more capability uh, in terms of delivering these projects. Um, but that also brings us back to the subject of technology uh, because we should also be delivering projects in different ways from the way we've done in the past. We shouldn't necessarily assume that it's all about concrete and steel and mud. Um, maybe there's a smarter way of delivering this infrastructure, which involves a lot more of it moving into factory environments. And in turn, maybe the skill sets that are going to deliver those projects are not quite the same as they were. 
10, 20 or 100 years ago, the skill sets that are required in the future are going to be much more around manufacturing and technology and data skill sets than they were before. Mm. Hopefully that will also mean that the construction industry that underpins the whole of the world of infrastructure becomes a more diverse industry too. Taking it to a personal level, you've had a, you know, a distinguished career in, in, in infrastructure. What have been some of the personal highlights for you in terms of projects that you've been involved in, and things that you've delivered that you think, oh, we really did something there? You can't operate in the world of infrastructure without getting emotionally engaged in particular projects that you, that you work on. Uh, and there's something really powerful for me about the fact that you do eventually end up delivering something, even though you have to be pretty patient. Sometimes it might take 10 years or even more before you before you see it. Um, uh, I mean, to, 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 to pick a couple, um, the Thames um, Super Sewer, uh, which is in the process of being built, was something that I worked on for, for more than five years. Um, and... Uh, as you know, I'm not an engineer, so when I say I worked on it, I wasn't the person that was trying to cast the concrete rings. Um, my involvement was uh, in terms of facilitating the conversation that needed to take place between government, between Thames Water um, as the promoter, and between the regulator to provide a an alignment of agreement around what needed to be done and how best to take it forward. Um, and that was personally really rewarding because to see a, to see a project move from uh, a period where there was a great deal of dissent to a period where there was a great deal of agreement and also to see individuals being able to convene around the idea um, that this was about a social good. This was about um, the idea that London, you know, one of the world's major cities if not the major city of the world that it was no longer acceptable for raw sewage to be thrown in the Thames in that city in the 21st century and 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 the alignment that you had around individuals to say right we agree that is what we need to do then all of the rest of the debate just became an academic one about how to do that most successfully so that one I'm really proud of and the other one is the uh, Mersey Gateway Bridge which was opened by the Queen last year, um, which I worked on for nearly 10 years of my life, um, and which has a phenomenal, um, will have a phenomenal impact on the, the econo- economic future um, of the North West, Liverpool and, and Holton and the boroughs to that part of the country. As you say, sometimes you have to be patient, but you do see exciting and, and important and impactful things happening in infrastructure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Richard, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate you. it. Thank you. The Future is autonomous, but the project is an independent podcast produced by Kenny Whitelaw-Jones and John Jorstad. The project is sponsored by Gridlines, and you can find out more at project-podcast.com.